Filipinization doesn't necessarily mean decolonization because even if you translate things, it doesn't mean that you're actually decolonizing. So we need to go beyond the discourse of language, in my opinion. Welcome to Decolonization in Action, a podcast that considers how knowledge, medicine, and science are being decolonized today. We hope to interview scientists, historians, activists, museum curators, and others who put decolonization in practice. My name is Christina Comer, and I'm broadcasting from the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science in Berlin, Germany. In this episode, we are in conversation with Kia Ramos-Suarez, a PhD candidate at Linnaeus University in Vekwa, Sweden, whose doctoral project is titled The Making of the Filipino Homosexual, Science, Homosexuality, and Empire in the Late 19th and Early 20th Century Colonial Philippines from the 1890s to 1946. Welcome, Kiel, to the podcast, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Before we start talking about your current doctoral project, could you please share more about the work you've done prior to joining Linnaeus University? Yeah, sure. So my name is Kiel Ramos Suarez. I am Filipino. I was born and raised in Quezon City in the Philippines. And I did my bachelor's degree in history at the University of the Philippines, Diliman. I finished my bachelor's degree in 2014, and then for a while, I worked as a faculty member at the University of the Philippines Integrated School. I was um, teaching social studies education to young Filipino students. And then after that, I was looking for graduate programs that joined together both gender studies and history because I didn't want to study just gender studies or just history. And thankfully, I found the right program for me, which is the Matilda Master of Arts in Women's and Gender History, hosted by the Central European University in Hungary and the University of Vienna in Austria. And yeah, I finished my master's degree in 2017. After that, I worked for a while as an English teacher in Hanoi, Vietnam, because I wanted to get to know Southeast Asia more, because that's the kind of the geographical focus of my research. And then I went back to Manila. I worked as a project officer for migration and gender equality at the University of the Philippines, CIFAL. It's a research organization specifically focusing on migration, gender equality, and sustainable development. And then I got a PhD position at Linnaeus University in Sweden. And my research focuses mainly on LGBTQ history in the Philippines, and I hope to expand that in the context of Southeast Asia. For my bachelor's degree, I wrote about the history of the Filipino lesbian movement during the early 1990s. The movement kind of took off from the women's movement during the 1980s after the EDSA revolution or the the people power revolution that we had in order to resist against the martial law declaration during the regime of Ferdinand Marcos. So it was the post-dictatorship era. And then, yeah, for my ME thesis, I wrote about the history of how homosexuality became discursively constructed as a disease in the post-independence period, specifically during the 1960s. Thank you for elaborating on your past research on LGBTQ histories in the Philippines, as well as your work on immigration and gender equality. I wanted to now turn to your current PhD project and wanted to ask if you could talk more about why you chose to now focus on the period between the 1890s and 1946. So, 
my, my doctoral project is focused on the late 19th and early 20th centuries. I wanted to zoom in into this particular period because when you take a look at historiography of medicine, historiography of colonial medicine in the Philippines, you can see that many historians and scholars have argued that this particular period was the time when the shift of imperial powers from Spain to the U.S., they were not just focused on the imperial warfare, so to speak. They are also tied to the epidemiological battle during that time because at the time, diseases swept the colony. They were preoccupied with how to fight against the diseases of cholera, leprosy, tuberculosis, malaria, etc. So at the time when all of these diseases and this and epidemics swept the, the colonial Philippines, the response of the American imperial government was to institutionalize public health. And historians have termed this, this phenomenon as colonial medicalization. So I want to situate my doctorate project on how homosexuality became part of the medical discourse, not just within the framework of how homosexuality became medicalized in the West. I also want to put it within this time period, which locates colonial medicalization as part of a larger historical process that was happening during this time. How do you trace medical colonization in this context? In your master's thesis, you discuss the colonial archives you visited, and I also wanted to ask if you could expand on what you found there, as well as what challenges presented themselves when visiting these archives in recent years. Yeah, so when I was doing my MA thesis research, uh, I was actually initially supposed to look into the colonial period during the American colonization of the Philippines. But when I went to the archives, I went to six archival centers. I will enumerate them. I went to the University of Santo Tomas Colonial Heritage Archives. That's one of the oldest universities in the Philippines. It's a Catholic university. It was established during the Spanish colonial period. They also have a very strong medical school. Many Filipinos would go there to become doctors. And I also went to the University of the Philippines College of Medicine. And the University of the Philippines College of Medicine is also one of the top medical schools in the Philippines. And I also went to their archives there. Uh, I went to the University of the Philippines Diliman Main Library. And then I went to the Ateneo de Manila University American Historical Collection. And then the fifth one, I, meant, I went to the National Library of the Philippines. And then the last one, I went to the National Center for Mental Health, which is the quote-unquote mental asylum that was established during the American colonial period. And these specific colonial archives, I was not able to specifically find the scientific studies on homosexuality during the colonial period. What I found were scientific studies on homosexuality published in the 1960s, in, in the post-independence period. But then, in the UST colonial archives, the University of San Tomas Colonial Heritage Archives, I was able to find one specific document published during the American colonial period in 1916. And this particular document is the Administrative Code of the Philippines, produced by the U.S. imperial government. And then when you take a look at that law, it's an imperial law, it mandates the establishment of the mental asylum in the Philippines as sponsored by the American colonial government. And in the document, you can find 
the, the definition of what an insane person is. They define the insane person as someone who is perverse. So you can see the the term perversion in this document. But that was the only document that I found. I literally went through the archives and looked for these for these terms like homosexuality perversion, sexual pathology in in the in the documents produced in, during this period, but I couldn't find anything except this document. Because at that time, the discourses that were proliferating were mostly on somatic diseases. For example, leprosy, tuberculosis, malaria, cholera, all of those things. So what I did was I refocused my ME thesis so that it will be in the post-independence period. But I know that there's a, some sort of continuity Given that colonial archives are written for, and most often by, the colonizer, I think it is especially critical, as you point out, to recognize that these archives were established under both Spanish imperial rule, as in the case of the colonial heritage archives that you mentioned, and also under U.S. colonial occupation. I wanted to now ask about your visits to the archives themselves, as I found it very interesting in your master's thesis when you describe going to an archive, expecting to find certain materials, and then discovering that they're actually no longer there. I wondered if you could expand on that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as I've mentioned earlier, there's this mental asylum, quote unquote, uh, that the American colonial government established during the early 20th century. So this mental asylum is called the Insular Psychopathic Hospital, which we now know as the National Center for Mental Health in Mandaluyong in the Philippines. So I, I personally went there and asked them whether or not they have these documents produced in the early 1900s that are specifically related to psychiatric journals, medical journals. And then they informed me that when they renovated the library, they actually threw them away. The doctor, who is also the head librarian, told me that, unfortunately, yeah, we threw them away. But you know how Filipinos are. They don't really care or they don't need, really know about their history. They, well, he said it in Filipino. He said, Alam mo naman ng mga Pilipino, wala silang pakialam sa history nila. Pakialam is, I, I would say, I would think of pakialam as a word that connotes both ignorance and apathy. So, like, Filipinos are, in general, apathetic and kind of ignorant about their own history, which is a really, really sad thing. And it's also kind of illegal to be throwing away these, these documents because they are public documents. So that's also another thing. I also want to reiterate that in some of the archival centers that I went to, they told me that I could just go inside and, okay, just take a look at those documents. And they didn't really give me any precaution or whatever. They just let people in and take a look at these early 20th century documents without, without any system. It was more of, I, I think, in my point of view, it was a reflection of the precarious situation of many archival documents in the Philippines. Maybe not just in the Philippines, but also maybe in many parts of the global south. Thank you for elaborating on your experiences in a variety of colonial archives in the Philippines, with one extreme being encountering an archive that in a way was in self-destruct mode, that at the same time was deploying a very negative construct of the quote-unquote public in the Philippines as not being interested in their own histories, with the other extreme being visiting an archive that seemed to have its doors wide open but provided 
little or no information about what it contained. So rather than literally destroying itself, this other archive limited access. With these institutions in mind that continue to present obstacles to recovering histories, specifically in regards to LGBTQ histories, I wanted to return to your research on medical colonization and ask how this term or its general understanding addressed in the case of the Philippines two forms of colonial rule, that of under the Spanish Empire and later that of the United States. How does medical colonization address the impact of these two forms of colonial rule and specifically the impact of religion and science on the regulation of sexualities? Yeah, that's a very good question because we don't want to take a look at medicine and colonial medicalization as something that's monolithic. Religion and, and medicine are not mutually exclusive. So this is actually one of the things that I also want to problematize in my research. I don't want to make medicalization as very much separate from religion. That's why I wanted to take into account that the shift of imperial powers from Spain and the U.S., they also it also influenced a lot. Uh, how we conceptualize homosexuality as both a sin and a sickness. Because when you take a look at some discourses on homosexuality, quote-unquote, in the Philippines, it's not just an issue of a mental illness, but it's also a, a moral issue. What I argued in my MA thesis, and anyway, what I also want to argue in my doctoral project, is that a lot of instances would show that there is a continuity. For example, I found this very, very recent news article. It, it was published in 2013. So this person, who is a retired Filipino archbishop, he said that homosexuality is a form of emotional and mental disturbance, and it's like a psychological impairment. And you can see how a high-ranking clerical person used the rhetoric of medicalization or pathologization in order to kind of justify religious stigmatization and and how he framed homosexuality as both a moral and a, a psychological issue. And I remember when I was doing my MA research, I talked to a Filipino psychologist named Professor Eric Manalastas. He was the one who initiated the efforts of instituting LGBTQ psychology at the University of the Philippines. So when I spoke to him, he informed me that, in fact, in the Philippines, there's a conflation of religious and medical discourses. and some of the clinical psychiatrists, for example, in the University of Santo Tomas, they're actually nuns or priests. There are also efforts done by the church to promote conversion therapy. So there was some kind of a church-sponsored pathologization of homosexuality. And yeah, so these faith or religion-based organizations, they also contributed to pathologizing homosexuality. So in my doctoral project, I wanted to somehow problematize this idea that Spanish, the Spanish colonial period represents the history of how the Philippines was converted religiously. So it was like the Spanish colonial period uh, was a very much religious issue, but then, then the Americans came, it was more of a medical issue. I wanted to kind of break away from this idea that these two colonial eras promoted two different things, but there are also American Protestant missionaries who came. And then in the in the Spanish colonial period, there were also Spanish doctors. And so this is something that I want to address in the historiography chapter of my PhD thesis. I, I want to focus on the continuity rather than this dividing shift. 
In your master's thesis, you introduced the Philippines as a country comprised of over 7,500 islands that contains a very diverse population, one that speaks over 100 languages and is comprised of over 100 different ethnic groups. So with that in mind, I wanted to ask how your research overlaps with indigenous histories and other local histories, and also how the colonial archive might be an institution and structure that oftentimes writes these histories. And how does this also present challenges in regards to LGBTQ histories? Yeah, that's true that most of our histories that were written long long before were actually written from the colonial perspective. And when you take a look at Philippine historiography, there are also specific trends on specific periods of time when there were also shifts in, in the way our histories have been written. Earlier in the colonial period, there was what we call the colonial historiography, wherein most of the writers of Philippine history were either Spanish or American or European writers. But towards the 1960s, there was a change in that, specifically with the work of Chodoro Agoncillo, who was one of the well-known historians of the Philippines. And he emphasized the use of the Filipino perspective in writing our histories. And then after that, Philippine historiography kind of already moving towards anti-colonial historiography. In my work, I struggle a lot with finding enough resources and enough literature talking about pre-colonial genders and sexualities. When you think of LGBTQ history and LGBTQ historiography, scholars, even women's and gender historiography in the Philippines, you'd always go back to the story of the Babaylan. The Babaylan was uh, an ancient Filipino medical and spiritual leader who was also a political leader during ancient Filipino society. The position of the Babaylan was usually occupied by a woman, but in some cases, ancient Filipino men would also become Babaylans, but only if they perform gender crossing. And this idea of gender crossing has been used by some scholars to actually trace the roots of non-normative genders and sexualities in the Philippines during the pre-colonial period. So in my MA thesis, since my focus is more of how homosexuality and non-normative genders and sexualities were conceptualized as uh, deviance and having pathological sexual behavior. I wanted to make a connection between the Filipino homosexuals, quote-unquote, who were treated as patients and who were treated with conversion therapy during the post-independence period. I wanted to take a look at that phenomenon going back to pre-colonial society, wherein the Babaylan was actually the doctor, quote-unquote, the, the healer, the, the spiritual and medical healer. And then after colonization, throughout the colonial eras, there was a huge shift where someone who used to perform medical healing and spiritual healing and who also performed gender crossing has now been conceived as someone who should be given treatment through conversion therapy. This is not the focus of my doctoral research, but it was something that I wanted to think more about, especially when I trace the history of not just the pathologization of homosexuality, but also the depathologization history of homosexuality in the Philippines. In relation to how you researched the Babaylan to recover and restore LGBTQ histories in the Philippines, how do decolonial and anti-colonial methods impact your work? And expanding from there, how do you find that these methods are currently being put into action in the Philippines? As I mentioned earlier, during the 1960s, there were shifts in the way our histories have been written. 
especially with the publication of Chidora Agoncillo's work, which is entitled The History of the Filipino People, which emphasizes the Filipino perspective in writing history. There's also a movement in history writing, which we call Pantayong Pananaw. Pantayong Pananaw means from us, for us perspective, which focuses on the Filipino perspective and how it shapes scholarly debates around Filipino history. And there were also efforts to Filipinize education. For example, the use of the Filipino language has been promoted as a medium of instruction in universities. And even the emergence of disciplines like Psikologiang Pilipino, which is like Filipino psychology or Pilosopiang Pilipino, which is Filipino philosophy. But Filipinization doesn't necessarily mean decolonization because even if you translate things, it doesn't mean that you're actually decolonizing. So we need to go beyond the discourse of language, in my opinion. And this would concern the protection of the rights of indigenous peoples as well, because there are some kind of human human rights violations done against indigenous peoples. And this is something that I am not that much aware of, but I know that there are some existing indigenous peoples organizations that are forming part of the whole indigenous peoples movement in the Philippines. Uh, In terms of challenging colonialism and imperialism in LGBTQ activism and discourses, right now in, in the Philippines, LGBTQ activism is using the intersectionality perspective wherein we recognize that oppression experienced by LGBTQ people is very much linked to class, to to ethnicity, to socioeconomic status, because poverty is also something that's a, a really huge problem in the Philippines, given that we're part of the global south. And I know that there's a lesbian-led LBT organization or a lesbian bisexual transmit organization. The name is Galang. It's based in Quezon City in the Philippines, and they're focusing on capacity building, organizing for urban poor, lesbian, bisexual women and trans men in communities in Quezon City. So they recognize the vulnerability of of, of LBT people from low-income families, and they include that in their own efforts to organize and to build the LGBTQ movement. But there are some debates as well that somehow place the LGBTQ movement as a, a sort of a middle class phenomenon because, yeah, there's a very minimal effort to include LGBTQ people from the marginalized sector of low-income income sector. So this is something that LGBTQ activists are somehow working on. There's a particular case that involved the death of a Filipino trans woman by a U.S. A United States Marine in the Philippines in 2014. And according to the case the U.S. Marine official, who is uh, Joseph Scott Pemberton, he killed Jennifer Laude upon knowing that she was transgender. And you can see here that the issue of the death of Jennifer Laude is not just limited to the issue of gender identity and sexual orientation, but it's also tied to the issue of imperialism and the continuing colonialism of of the U.S. in the Philippines, or what they call neocolonialism. And since we have the existing Philippines-United States Visiting Forces Agreement where there are some U.S. Marine stations in, in parts of the Philippines, and this happened specifically in Olongapo, in Luzon. 
So what I wanted to say is that the issue of sexual orientation, gender identity, and expression should not be seen as something that's isolated, but something that is very much intricately and inextricably linked to the issues of imperialism, class, ethnicity, disability, and other multiple and intersecting forms of oppression. Thank you for bringing attention to recent forms of violence committed against the trans community in the Philippines and the ongoing lack of justice for Jennifer Lauda, who, as you mentioned, was murdered in 2014 by U.S. Marine Joseph Scott Pemberton. As we conclude this episode of the podcast, I think it is especially critical to address how colonial violence continues to affect the LGBTQ communities in the Philippines and that colonial relations between the United States and the Philippines continue. Thank you, Kiel, for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Christina. This is the Decolonization in Action podcast. Please like, share, and rate our episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can follow us on Twitter at Deck in Action. To learn more about our podcast and to find the complete biographies of the people we interviewed, as well as links to organizations and projects mentioned in this episode, please visit www.decolonizationinaction.com. Thanks for joining us.